0: When you want to buy things, buy it in alignment with your values. So put a pause before you buy something new and say, hey, who made this garment? Were they fair wages? Was it fair conditions? Or was this garment made from blood, sweat and tears of another female out in the world that is trying to you know, make do so that she can feed her child? Is that fair? Is these wages fair for this person? Because everything that we consume is made by another person. And we have to understand that we the way that we spend our money is the way we vote with our dollar. So the way we spend with our money is the way that we want to vote for the world that we want to see.
1: I'm Alison Rice and welcome to Offline the Podcast. These are honest conversations about true self with the people behind the Instagram accounts and the teachers who help us on our way. A lot has changed since I launched Offline in 2018. It started as a podcast, and thanks to your ongoing support, it's turned into a bit of a movement. Today, Offline exists to help us explore the essence of who we are, our true self and how to live, create, and succeed from that place. If you need help making contact with your unique purpose, or maybe you're ready for a conscious career change and need some advice, I encourage you to explore my online learning opportunities at getoffline.co forward slash study. You can also follow getoffline.co on Instagram, and me, I'm Alison Larson Rice. I hope this episode helps you on your way. Thank you for being here. Living a zero-waste life. How intimidating does that sound? Well, as I learned from my next guest, not as intimidating as you might think. Doctor, rocket scientist, author... Yes, all of those things, and zero waste life advocate Anita Van Dyke was an absolute joy to speak to. If nothing else, I hope you get a lot of permission from this episode. I did, and I'll tell you why. Anita challenges the dogma surrounding living a zero waste life. She educates us that it's not about being perfect, it's actually just about effort. Like, have you ever found yourself wanting to reduce your personal waste, but feel totally overwhelmed when it comes to how? Or maybe you're scared that if you try, you'll fail. And then there's the fear of the judgment that can come with living a more conscious life. 2020 taught us that cancel culture is real, and while it's sometimes very valid, I think it also stops us from speaking up and out about the ways we're trying to be better. So Anita is here to help us take a step forward. In this episode, she explains that living a zero-waste life often starts with living a low-waste life. She also shares how she personally handles criticism for her choices, why she implements spending bans and what she discovers when she does, easy zero-waste strategies that absolutely anyone can implement today. She also talks about why spirituality and science do coexist and what motherhood and a major health scare taught her about herself. Here's the supremely articulate and very thoughtful Anita and I for Offline. So I wanted to start by sharing with you that we have really similar stories and you've just shared with me that you actually listen to the podcast, which is incredible. Like I still get very overwhelmed when people say that, like I see the numbers, but I don't actually think anyone's real. And especially anyone I interview that listens, it means a lot to me. So, um, but so, you know, a lot about my own transition story
0: Yeah. And I have to say, I've been a huge fan of your vulnerability and sharing your journey with your listeners, but also the way that you coax um, questions and answers from your interviewees. So it's such an honor to be on your podcast. Pressure's on. (laughs) (laughs) I hope my questions are good. Um,
1: But honestly, reading your, like the research I've done on you, reading your transition story, it actually felt a lot like reading my own. And I actually think you used the term true self in your about section Mm, on your mm. website. And I thought, wow, like that's such, you know, huge resonance for me. But I thought we could start by talking about, I guess, Anita before Zero Waste Life. Um, You weren't always a minimalist. Um, Can you tell us about your, would it be your twenties and what happened and and what did you learn? Because I know much like me, you were living a life of excess.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I call this my quarter life crisis And during my early 20s, I was a maximalist in every sense of the word. So I had the latest Gucci shoes, the Louis Vuitton handbag, and I was climbing up this corporate ladder being a successful engineer, being a manager at the age of 27, climbing up this corporate ladder and thinking that money... Power success was all based on these superficial notions of what it meant to be successful in the modern world. And for me, I was climbing up this corporate ladder, but then I realised that this ladder was actually leaning against the wrong bloody wall. (laughs) It was, it was, you know, it was other people's notions of success. It was having the designer handbags. It was all about the labels. It was all about external. And there was no introspective or internal work that was going on. And that's why at 27, I kind of took a break from all of this. I took a six-month sabbatical. Um, from my work, and I thought about what it really meant to live a meaningful life, a life that's truly zero waste, in which we don't waste our resources, including time, money, and our Earth's resources. And it really got me back to where my roots were, so my family, I'm a Chinese Australian background. My family are immigrants, and I am a first generation Australian. So my parents both came here with nothing, literally nothing twenty dollars in their back pocket, and worked, um, and and worked as in migrant jobs, and they started with nothing. And I was really happy as a four year old coming from a communist China country to appreciate you know, things such as a can of Coke. A can of Coke was a sign of luxury back in communist China. So coming to Australia where Coke, you know, was free free and almost virtually cheap as chips was such a sign of luxury. And then I went from this young girl who appreciated the small things in life to craving more and more and more and more. And it wasn't really reflective of who I was. And that's when my kind of environmentalism journey and going back to uni, starting to become a doctor really began.
1: I wondered on that. One of the questions I get asked a lot for my through my own story is like, when you have that realization, what do you what is the first thing that you do? Like you don't obviously, well, I didn't walk into work the next day and quit. It was like a six-month process for me. But what did those initial steps look like in terms of transitioning for you? And maybe even deeper than that, in terms of, I guess, exploring your internal landscape, what did that look like as well? Where did you start?
0: Oh, I think that's such a tricky question. I think it started superficially, um, as it always does. It actually started with economics and finances. So when I took that six month sabbatical, I went from a two income family to a one income family, and I had to make ends meet on one income. And so that meant going back to my migrant roots and learning how to live frugally. So not wasting your resources, not wasting your food, spending your money mindfully. And in doing so, I realized that, hey, we don't need all this designer handbags, this fancy shoes, the, you know, five-star dinners, we actually can live really happily and really quite well without a lot of money. So what was I chasing this kind of corporate dream for? Um, and so that was where it started. It started with the economics, but then it kind of grew into more of an inner landscape exploration of, well, if I don't strive for the corporate success and the money, then what is life all about? What does it mean to be successful in this modern age? And this comes back to, once again, um, my Chinese roots. In the Chinese community, the definition of success is based around your face, so your exterior. What it means to be successful is to look like you're successful, so having the designer labels and the big house in the suburbs. And for me, none of that resonated To me, I had to redefine what success meant on my terms. And for me, success really ultimately meant freedom. And that's what I was seeking.
1: Yes. Oh, gosh, that resonates for me. I think the last two years, the big thing that keeps coming up for me is time. Like Mm. success equals time. Like if I can have a whole day where I choose what I do and I choose what I create, I can create more consciously is one thing. But... I can also choose to rest and like this whole concept of like resting is not waiting, like resting is a form of action. That's been huge for me because I think we were much the same in that like I read that your entire day was scheduled, and that your assistant had to schedule you five-minute toilet breaks yeah. <laughs> before meetings. And I, again, I felt like I was reading myself because my two IC would have to say go to the toilet, and it's yeah. like I was basically a walking urinary tract infection waiting to happen. I feel like.
0: Yeah, I totally agree. I think there's this corporate world where we have to, um, you know, account for our time, our billing hours, you know, whether you're a lawyer or a consultant, our billing hours are so important. And um, as a manager, I wasn't in um, private sector, then I was actually in public sector, but even in public sector, I couldn't, I was in meetings, back-to-back meetings every single day. And often those meetings were superfluous, let's be honest. But often those meetings were places where you had to show that you were present to give face. And my assistant had to schedule in toilet breaks. And it <laughs> just, it was, you know, literally because I had back to back meetings. And this is what I see now. And um, as I transition from being a corporate engineer to now I'm studying medicine, I've actually finished medicine. Um, Oh, congratulations. Thank you. I just finished a couple of weeks ago and now I'm going to be a junior doctor. That's huge. Yeah, I'm going to be a junior doctor. And it was a transition process of understanding what meaningful work meant to me and that freedom. But even now in the medical world, I have to say, they're not known for having uh, a balanced lifestyle in terms of their health. You see a lot of junior doctors burning out for the same reasons that a lot of um, people in the corporate world burn out, not looking after your health not not incorporating toilet breaks, not drinking enough water. And I just have to question, am I getting myself into another world where I'm going to burn out again? So this time around, I really have to rein myself in and go, what are my values and really stick to them?
1: Yeah. Have you thought much about, um, perhaps you haven't yet, but the influence you could have as a young female doctor, having had the experience you've had, like if you've had such an impact on, I guess, what it means to live a more conscious life, could you, have you thought about how that might, yeah. I don't know, like show up in medicine?
0: I think so. I think it needs to have a culture change in terms of the way we manage our junior doctors, especially. Um, our junior doctors have one of the highest suicide rates in the country. That's not acceptable. Wow. If we can't look after our own health, how can we look after the health of others? I think I think we really need to have a frank conversation about that. And I think the exciting thing is, though, that more people are realising that we need to put our own oxygen mask on first before we put on other people's oxygen masks. And this is a common thing as an aerospace engineer. I heard, you know, on the PA system all the time, put on your own oxygen mask first And we really have to devise ways and systems where we can actually do that. And I think COVID has been a really real reflection on how we don't need to live in a world where we have back-to-back meetings without going to the toilet. (laughs) You know, we can have meetings at home and it's about adapting that kind of flexibility and that freedom that we all crave into a better work-life balance.
1: Mm. It's been one of the main themes of my one-on-one coaching sessions. A lot of, um, was well, you know, it's all women. I think I've only ever coached one guy and it was great. Actually, he worked for a bank. I was like, this is awesome. Um, but there's a lot of young women who are feeling really challenged around um, being micromanaged and not trusted mm. by their leadership team through COVID and I think that's such an interesting experience to go through. It is relevant, but it doesn't mean that it's it's easy. But it's interesting actually how different businesses are using this time um, versus how some people are just making it like a clock watching exercise and you have to kind of prove what you've done from home. But I think a lot of people are actually feeling, I'm. I mean, I'm obviously not in a team or a corporate business, but I'm feeling a lot more productive because it feels like my inbox isn't as crazy. Do you feel that?
0: Yeah, I think the flexibility is what's key. I think in a world that created such advanced technology, um, we need to have more flexibility, particularly for women. So I've worked in engineering, which was about 92% male, and I've also worked in now healthcare, which is about 50% female. So I've seen the differences of how, um, you know, gender dynamics really work. Unfortunately, as females, as a mother myself, I have a daughter who's two, we have to take time out to bear the child, you know, and also Mm -hmm. push the child out and also breastfeed and all that. And women want to be in the workforce if we're given opportunities to be flexible. And that means incorporating all the roles that women have, not only as mothers, but also as carers, as sisters, as friends, and all those things that we have as nurturers of society. And also, it's not just about women entering those roles and giving them opportunity and more flexibility. It's about giving men the opportunity to rise up and embrace those roles as well. Let's not forget that men want to be fathers, they want to be carers, and they don't just want to be the sole breadwinners. They want to be part of the community as much as women do, and we need to give them that opportunity.
1: Mm, Tony's like, <laughs> when our baby comes, he's like, I am nominating myself to be the primary care estate, work from home, and you can <laughs> you owe all the money. I'm like, oh. Okay.
0: Well, <laughs> well I just goes. want to say congratulations on this journey that you're about to embark on. I think motherhood has really made me so vulnerable and opened me up and in in the best ways possible. And I think that I'm really excited to be, you know, hearing about your journey as well.
1: Mm, thank you. Well, I want to get on to motherhood, but first mm. I want to talk about your, um, one of the aspects of your new book. So A Zero Waste Family came out in December Mm -hmm. and um, it's wonderful and it's a very comforting read. I don't know how much feedback you've had yet, but um, it says something about it because it's small and it's beautifully designed. It was a very nourishing read. Have
0: you heard that yet? Oh, thank you. That's. I wanted it to be a warm hug. I Mm. wanted it to have that kind of, uh, you're talking to a friend or a family member, that you can talk about, A, how to reduce your waste, but most importantly, streamline your lifestyle so that you can have freedom for things that matter the most. And that means, um, and I break it down in my book into three parts, firstly, self-care, which is the pivotal point of everything. You can't look after yourself, um, and look after if you don't look after yourself, you can't look after others. The second point being home care. So how to run your home in an, an efficient way? Because I am a, a mother, an author, a doctor. And I have got a lot of projects juggling in the air. And one of the most common questions I get asked is, how do I do it all? And that's that home care aspect, having systems in your home to work effectively for you. And then thirdly, I have a childcare aspect, and this is about how to raise conscious citizens in a very fractured world. I think 2020 has really broken us in a lot of ways and showed how systems are not working for us and how do we raise young children in a context of, you know, climate change, plastic pollution, racial inequality, all these things that are really big issues and seem so overwhelming So how can we raise children in this kind of fractured world? And it's broken down into those three sections. Mm, One of
1: the things you do in the book, and actually, you know, the one before it from what I've read online, I haven't read that one, is you give us permission to be imperfect activists for our planet, but also for ourselves. And I think the term zero waste, and you've also admitted this, it sounds really intimidating, but... I wondered if we could actually talk about what do you mean when you say zero waste?
0: When I say zero waste, I'm taking it on a sort of in a pun. So two ways. Zero waste has traditionally been a movement about reducing your plastic pollution, which is great. This is something that we still want to do. And it's something that's really important. How we want to be more mindful about the waste that we send to landfill. But secondly, there's that other term of zero waste, which is not wasting any of your resources, which includes time, money, and energy. And I think that those two kind of uh, pathways of zero waste is what we incorporate into what an everyday activist should be. An everyday activist is someone who looks after their own mental, physical well-being, as well as the physical well-being of the planet by doing everyday small changes that can make a big cumulative difference in the long run.
1: You give us a commendable amount of vulnerability in the introduction. So I want to say thank you for being real because it's very rare. For everyone listening, can you tell us what led you to write this second book?
0: So I think we live in a world where Instagram, Pinterest, Facebook or whatever shows us the perfect ideal life that we all crave towards. And in my kind of um, social media page, it it grew and it grew and it grew and it looked aesthetically clean, minimal, zero waste. It looked aesthetically beautiful. But on the inside, there was You know, waves of emotion and turmoil going on because I was juggling too much. And in my first chapter, I talk about having this picture perfect Instagram reel, being the zero waste girl, reducing her waste, juggling it all, being a medical student and a mother. And that it looked from the outside that I had it all together. But it took an incident where a plastic straw was put in my green smoothie when I specifically said no straw for me to break down and cry as if all this (laughs) was going to be the end of the world. And it wasn't the plastic straw that broke the camel's back. It was the sense of overwhelm that I felt as a young mother trying to juggle it all. And I think as, for, as a first-time mother and as a mother in general, we all get that sensation where, hey, the life that I knew where I had these lovely morning routines, maybe, you know, yoga practices, meditation practices, it's all going to be turned upside down when you have a crying toddler. And and that's okay. <laughs> and that's okay <laughs> to feel overwhelmed and overworked and how the sense of the, all the world's problems can seem overwhelming. And and. and In this book, I kind of build myself back up from where I felt like I had nothing left to give to going back through the pillars of self-care, home care and childcare to build a life that is actually sustainable for me. And I have a beautiful quote in there that I say, sustainability has to be sustainable for you. So when Mm. you tackle the waste of the planet, when you tackle climate change, when you tackle all these big issues, it has to be sustainable for you as well. And so that's why I incorporate a 30-day guide about all these different steps of how we can make environmentalism, everyday activism, a form of self-care as well.
1: Mm. Because I guess that comes back to the question of who we're doing it for, because if we're doing it to be performative... Mm. I think perhaps is that where you believe we get into that sort of non-sustainable action where we're being too rigid and trying to be too perfect and do it all and then actually it all kind of crumbles. But if we're doing it truly for ourselves first and then the planet second, then it takes on a little bit more of an individualised approach.
0: I love that. And I think that's exactly what my book is trying to capture, that we can be imperfectly perfect. In fact, the first day of my 30-day guide is aim for effort, not perfection. I don't even say aim for progress, you know, that it's typically aim for progress, not perfection, but I say aim for effort because the fact that you're doing something rather than nothing is better than doing absolutely nothing at all. And I think that's what we all have to admit as mothers, as activists, as carers of the world and carers of our family, that doing something is better than nothing. And it has to be in a method that's not performative. Um, I think there is criticism on the zero waste movement and also the minimalist movement in that it can be about white walls, white beds and, and, you know, white rooms, and it can have an aesthetic kind of um, seductiveness to about it. But really, at the crux of all this, it's about minimizing distractions, not wasting your time and resources so that you can put energy towards things that truly matter the most.
1: Mm. That's really beautiful. Um I wondered on motherhood if we could spend a little bit of time there, um because I did, I really, really valued your vulnerability. Um, what has being or becoming a mother taught you about yourself?
0: (sighs) Motherhood has taught me so many things. I think it's really peeled back, firstly, understanding that your child is a mirror of you. So whatever you hate about yourself you will see it in your child. Whatever you love about (laughs) yourself, you will see it in your child. And all the behaviours that you want to project out into the world will be mirrored back into you with the way that your child behaves. And I think that was a real eye-opener, that whatever I do, I'm a role model now. Whether you like it or not, someone's got their eyes on you at all times and you are a role model to that young person. So how you look after yourself, how you look after your family, how you look after the world will be reflected back on you. And I think that was something I hadn't anticipated. I thought that raising a child was, you know, having role models in the other. So, you know, you think about role models such as, you know, politicians or movie stars or, you know, celebrities. However, the true role model, is actually yourself and your partner and the home that you've created because those are the values that will be reflected in your child and that's been a real kind of eye-opener to me and something that I have to constantly check myself every day is this the kind of values is this the kind of world that I want to mirror in my child
1: it's big stuff isn't it it's like it's a big responsibility um I wondered have you found anything particularly surprising about motherhood or not?
0: I guess for me motherhood has been surprising in the fact that it can be so lonely. You mm. think that, you know, having someone with you 24-7 and having a being, growing a being with you 24-7 and then putting it out in the world 24-7, you think that you would always be surrounded by love and comfort and a sense of community which you are but you there's also some really times of loneliness and I think it's the way that we see motherhood especially as working mothers that we have to continue being the woman that we were before motherhood so and push on and do all those amazing things whilst at the same time juggling a whole new world um that being said though Motherhood is amazing at the same time. I, I don't think anyone can tell you how heartbreakingly open you've become and so vulnerable mm. to the world that you also become. It's this kind of dichotomy of being increasingly lonely at in, in certain points in time when you feel so vulnerable where you know you're pr- pumping breast milk um on the on the on the in the in the breastfeeding room of work so that you can have milk for your daughter by yourself in your lunch break and that's incredibly lonely because we isolate women when they're breastfeeding but also at the same time it's the most heartbreakingly beautiful thing where you cry at the drop of a hat because they've done something so beautiful such as you know their eyelashes look beautiful in the sunlight. <laughs> it's just, so nice. yeah, it's just this dichotomy. And I just never experienced this kind of range of emotions that I felt before I had a baby. The spectrum of emotions has grown and I am grateful for it. But at the same time, because the spectrums of emotions have grown, you feel the really bad emotions more, but you also feel the really good emotions more as well.
1: Mm, that's so nice. You say in your book that parenting isn't a test of endurance, character, or strength, and I really loved that. You give the advice to ask for help, um, but I think especially as women, asking for help, even if you're not a parent in any other aspect of your life, I think we've tied that very closely with failure. Mm. And I wondered if you can share how you moved past that limiting belief that by asking for help you was you were somehow not capable and failing.
0: Yeah, I think that's one of the days in my thirty day guide where we have to share the load, and I think this comes back to my Chinese upbringing. So my grandmother, my auntie, my extended family helped raise me because that's what the Chinese culture promotes that you it takes a village to raise a child literally it takes a village and when I was at the you know I I immigrated when I was four years old but from the age of zero to four I was in this community where a a rural community where everyone knew each other on the street and you can drop your children off and auntie so-and-so would look after your child whilst you you know the mother went and did things that she needed to do it was a real community effort and I think in the western world what I do see is that whilst we're so materially rich we're so community poor in that I don't see that kind of connection that we had where everyone on the street knew each other you could drop your kids off freely for anyone to babysit and I think I think I had to embrace that again and that's what really sharing the load means meaning comfort in the fact that you can trust other people that they've got your back and that you've got their back as well, that there is a mutual trust and that's how communities have grown all through the decades is mm. that sense of trust and faith in each other, that we've got each other's back and that we will provide help when, when we need to. So I had to let go of any kind of... Um, antithesis to that any kind of fear of the other uh, fear of my neighbors fear of my community and let go of fearing of that my child be not in safe hands because ultimately I have trust in humanity and trust that my child will be looked after whether it be my mum or a friend or other people and letting go of that fear
1: Mm, so good um at the end of the book And I won't kind of give it all away (laughs) because we want people to go and buy the book. Yes, Um, thank you. You do talk about um, a very serious health scare, so share as much as you want to. But I was surprised to learn when I read that part that you didn't believe you were sort of taking your own zero waste life advice before the scare. And I guess my question is, because I've done this myself a lot, Why do you think we do that, like we become experts on these particular topics and then we don't follow our own lead? Like why do we do that?
0: I think it's almost a complacency that Mm. we get into a pattern of like, yeah, I've got this, I've got this, you know, I've got the groove, I'm juggling motherhood, I'm juggling medicine, I'm juggling being an author, I'm fine, I'm fine. And you go on down this treadmill of this I'm fineness. You know, people ask you, how are you going? I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine. <laughs> and then suddenly you're not. <laughs> and I think it's, I think I didn't give myself in t- enough time to do self-reflection and mm. I had to take time out and reflect and I'm still doing that now. I'm actually recovering from this health scare and just recently had surgery the past um past week. I'm still recovering from surgery for it. Oh, um, wow, that was so recent. Yeah, so I only had surgery last last Wednesday. Wow. And it's a real testimony to be in a hospital bed, completely buck naked and exposed and vulnerable. So, I have a new found empathy for my patients because you're completely left at the surgeon's hands, at the mercy of the anesthetist and the surgeon, and you're really vulnerable. And I think through this process, it has made me realise even more how important self-care is. And not only self-care in the, you know, hashtag Super Soul Sunday kind of way, yeah. <laughs> in that kind of oprah kind of way, but in a, a genuine self-care way where you actually give yourself enough buffer to stop, reflect, and go back to your core values and i say this now with kind of you know tears in my eyes because i hadn't given myself that because i was too busy like we most women do dog paddling to survive rather than living to thrive mm. and we we need to we need to stop and learn to thrive rather than just dog paddle our way to survival because that's not what living in this world about is about. Imagine if your whole life was just spent surviving rather than thriving. And that's that's what I'm still trying to grapple with and still learn, that self-care is the fundamental thing to all this. And self-care mm. can be um, expressed in a variety of ways. It can be expressed in having a beautiful cup of tea for yourself every morning. It could be expressed in booking in that yoga class and actually going to it. Whatever it may be, it's carving out the space to actually be of service to yourself.
1: Mm. I think that's the big thing that I've been learning over the past couple of years is self-care can, or I guess beyond self-care, tending to our internal needs and landscape and experiences can also look like nothing at all. Like I think a lot of us and I was like this, I wanted the action step. You know, we're so programmed to want the plan. Okay, I'm going to put together a self-care plan and I'm going to implement all these things in my week. And then we stand, we feel really overwhelmed by all this new stuff we've committed to and we're not actually getting any joy out of it. Like sometimes exploring ourselves internally and looking after ourselves looks like nothing. There's no mm. action. It's just yeah. stopping, you know. Yeah, and that's probably been the hardest thing for me is sitting in the nothingness because I was so used to having to like my worth was so closely tied to my productivity.
0: Oh, and and that's what we thrive on in the Western world. That's you mm. know, our value is placed based on based on key performance indicators, KPIs. <laughs> it's based on it's how It's like mu- being
1: in a business 24-7. Yeah.
0: It's like billing hours. It's like how much can you produce? How many followers do you have? How many likes mm. do you have? It's all numbers-based. But none of that actually means anything,
1: really. It doesn't, especially really. the moment you get sick or go through any sort of hardship. I think I talk a lot about the relevancy of difficult situations and even for you I was thinking wow, how relevant was it for you to have that health scare so that you could experience yourself as your patient?
0: Yes, and I think... Like,
1: how incredible is that?
0: I think that was the... And and that's what I had to reflect on recently. Being a doctor, you put on a certain, you know, role that you have to... You're responsible, you're, you know, erudite, you're articulate, you're, you know, there's a certain responsibility placed upon you. And mm. you can't really be too vulnerable because your patient is the vulnerable one. But having have that role reverse where I was the patient, I could totally empathise with my patients so much more now in the fact that you are left at the mercy of everyone else. Mm. And I want my patients to know Mm. in the future that I've got their back, they're taken care of in their most vulnerable moments of time. And I think as mothers, that's what we do kind of by intuition, that we've got everyone else's back, that we take care of them in their most vulnerable times and take care of their needs. But at the same time, we've got to make sure we take care of our own needs as well. Mm. Who's looking after us? Who's got our back? You know, making sure that we are looking after ourselves so that we can look after others.
1: Okay, getting back on to Zero Waste. Anita mentions the growing dogma in the zero-waste community, that there's only one way to live a zero-waste life, that anything other than perfection isn't good enough. As I reflected on that reality, I realized it is the fear of judgment that makes living a zero-waste life feel inaccessible and, to be honest, almost impossible to get right. So I wanted to know what Anita would say to anyone passing judgment on someone else's attempt at reducing their waste and their footprint.
0: I would say two things. Firstly, we were all beginners once. And we all have to embrace that we all have to start somewhere, and it's okay to at different stages of your life to be much more zero waste than you are now. and sometimes you can talk about being low waste or mm. even in my first book I talk about the different stages. So firstly we want to reduce your waste. Reducing your waste means using up what you have. Don't go out and buy anything new. use up what you have, even if it is in plastic because fundamentally it, you've already bought it and then res- and then recycling it responsibly later. The second option is the low waste option. So choosing an option that isn't plastic. So choosing a cardboard option or choosing something that's made of tin foil or choosing something that's made out of paper. All those things can be recycled infinitely without degradation to the material itself. Unlike plastic, plastic is actually downcycled. So that means it um, gets downcycled to poorer, poorer forms of plastic until it can't be recycled any further and it sits in landfill, leaching out methane. That's why plastic's so bad. And then, so choosing those other options in those low waste options is perfectly fine if you're at that stage of your life. And then there's the zero waste option. And this means embracing things such as naked foods. So, you know, when you're buying a mandarin, you don't need to put it in a plastic bag. Nature has already created the perfect covering for it. It's got a peel. <laughs> so, you know, just grab a couple of mandarins and put it in your trolley. It's fine. Um, or if you want, choose a reusable option such as a reusable, um, you know, cloth bag that you can put the mandarins in. And also another zero waste option is using your products in your pantry to make beauty products, home cleaning products. Going back into our grandmother's generation, looking at their recipes, you know, looking underneath your sink and saying, do I really need 15 cleaners to clean the house? Or do I just need a bit of vinegar and water? You know, going back to the basics and things like that. And I think that's what I want to say, that we were all beginners once and that we can adapt sustainability to different levels and different stages of our lives. And the second thing I want to say is teach, don't preach. And I have a whole kind of chapter dedicated to that in the book, where I talk about we live in a world, like you say, it's a cancel culture where people want to preach their newfound, you know, idealisms towards people, whether it be mm. any kind of ism, minimalism, zero wasteism, veganism, whatever it be. Mm. We want to share these things and ideas to other people, but instead of preaching it in a way that's, you know, n- not friendly or not open. Why not just teach when asked? So if someone says to you, hey, I love your reusable spork, spork, which is a spoon, fork and knife in one. Uh, I have it in my zero waste kit, which I carry around with me all the time. And, And, you know, if they spark up that conversation, say to them, oh, yeah, I got it from, you know, a camping store. It's a great way to reduce your waste instead of, you know, using your plastic utensils that you get for your takeaway. I just use this instead. And sparking at that conversation in a positive and welcoming way and showing that living in you know in an eco-friendly way can be chic and can be making sensible switches just for everyday life choices that don't have to be a huge burden on what you already do. Mm.
1: Have you had to deal with any quite personal criticism?
0: Yeah, I think I've had a lot of criticism over the years. My community has grown from, you know, a couple of hundred followers to now over 91,000 followers. And whenever you put yourself out into the world in the public eye, there's always going to be naysayers. And I've had to learn to adapt and change that kind of tone towards myself and also towards those naysayers. Now what I do is I just delete the comments and block the block the accounts because really, at the end of the day, my mental health is more important than how many followers are on Mm. Instagram. You know, if people want to come to the conversation with um, constructive criticism or uh, a kind of um, conversation, I'm more than happy to welcome that. But a conversation, I have to remind people, takes two to tango. It's not just about one person attacking them and not giving the other person space to refute. It's also about coming into the conversation, having done your research, not just looking at one post and then making assumptions about that person. It's about coming into the conversation with a genuine curiosity rather than in attack mode.
1: Mm, I think I've struggled with that a lot personally because, and you know, because you've been listening to the podcast Mm. and I was really, really open in the beginning and really, and I still am open, but I think through receiving criticism and negative reviews and really difficult DMs, you start to withdraw and retreat out of sort of self-preservation and protection. But I have been thinking a lot about, well, who is that serving? Because it's not serving me because I do want to share. It's definitely not serving my community by me kind of holding back. But I'm such a sensitive (laughs) soul, you know, and so I have found it very difficult to be on social media because I feel like it's only half of myself I'm bringing to the equation, but that's not actually how we kind of cultivate community, you know, because it's not authentic.
0: I think think the power of your podcast and your social media presence is your vulnerability. That is Mm. your superpower. And I don't think you should let go of that. I think in your vulnerability, people can see their own vulnerabilities and their own heartbreaks and their own journeys. And that's how we can share through our own stories. I don't think you should let go of that. And I've had to come to terms with my own how much I share and how Mm. much I give to my community and also the boundaries. And I talk about this in the 30 day guide as well about setting buffers and boundaries for not just. Your calendars, but also for your social media presence, and also your engagements in real life. You know, if you if you don't want to engage in something, you don't have to. You have the choice. If you want to surround yourself with positive energy and and comments which are, uh, are practical but critical and empowering at the same time, do that. People have the choice to follow who they want. You yeah. have the choice for who views your content as well.
1: That's good for me. I'm like, block and delete. This is, you know, I've always wondered whether that's the right thing or not, because then I'm worried, or do they go and create then like those fake accounts where they troll you on those? Like it becomes quite overwhelming. Like you don't want to misstep and like, but then that gives like power to the bully, doesn't it?
0: It does. And I've just had two fake accounts created which oh is very God. serendipitous in the last 24 hours about me and sending spam to my followers and that's just the nature of being in on social media there mm. are pros and there are cons but i have to say the pros outweigh the cons every day and you just got to keep going back to that going back to your purpose why am i sharing this what is this benefiting who am i sharing this to and mm. sh- and, and just giving enough of yourself so that you can get your message across but not so much that you your mental health suffers That's really good advice and I think the main thing I'm so protective of now and something that you might want to consider in the future as well is how much you share of your child Um, you know I'm so protective of how um, my daughter is presented on social media I share my family mainly my daughter because she's goddamn cute (laughs) she (laughs) is very cute But also at the same time, I want to show that, you know, secondhand clothing, zero-waste living is attainable for a family and we got to break the stigma of buying new, new, new for our kids because that's how we express our love and showing that our planetary resources are limited and that buying secondhand clothes can be chic for children and it saves you money as well.
1: Well, this is a really good segue actually because I wanted to talk to you about fashion (laughs) Um, you, you're a fashion lover and you have really, really great classic style. Um, I think, you know, as women, our love for fashion can perhaps be one of the biggest barriers to living a zero waste life. Like I feel so guilty when I shop at a chain store, it happens probably every kind of four to six months now, if, I want that kind of hit of new, but maybe my budget doesn't extend to like a super conscious brand or a consignment store, say. What would be your advice to women, you know, I guess thinking about fashion and fashion as a reward. And I think that's a fair statement because we do work really hard and we do want to feel beautiful and look nice. Um, What would be your advice?
0: Look, I totally agree. I love fashion and i it's in my blood. So both my parents worked in the Australian fashion industry for over 20 years. And so I, I genuinely love it. But I have to say the way that we're consuming has drastically changed over the last 20 years. So when my mother first started in, a, in an Australian fashion company 20 years ago, there were only four seasons of the year, really, that women bought clothing. So that would be know winter autumn summer and spring and you would have a little refresh of your wardrobe maybe then and people would invest in quality pieces and you kind of knew where the product was made it was generally made in Australia because we were so far away from the rest of the world we didn't really have imports back then and that's why Australian fashion was really huge in the 80s and 90s and the thousands because we're so far away and But now, since that has changed and we've become more globalised and labour has become cheaper, there's not four seasons of the year. There's 52 seasons of the year Mm. where something comes out new every single week and we have to be on trend every single week. So, this kind of consumption isn't actually viable for our bank accounts or for the planet. So, Going back to my three steps again, firstly, reduce your consumption. If you're feeling like, oh, this is all too hard, maybe put yourself on a bit of a spending ban. So what I like to do every year is go on a month-long spending ban. You can call it no spend like I like to do on <laughs> September, and just say, this month, I'm not going to buy any clothing, any beauty products, or any kind of extras, and see how I do. And most of the time, you'll find that you don't actually need all those trends and the beauty gadgets, and because you actually can make do with what you have. For one month of the year, that's not a lot lot hard to ask. You can even do it for two weeks or even one week and see how you go. The second step is then the low waste option. So this means shopping from your wardrobe or it could mean things such as shopping from a consignment store or it could mean shopping from a thrift store such as an op shop. My favourite way to do things is to buy high quality pieces at a low cost by looking through eBay. So one Mm. of my favourite designer brands is Anina Bing. Anina Bing costs a lot of money brand new but I've found that so many of her pieces you can get on eBay for a fraction of the cost. So why wouldn't you? And like I said, like you said before, um, I really thank you for saying that I have classic style because that's what I really want to show, that a lot of the classic pieces you can get from the thrift store for like less than $15 a piece. So a trench coat is always going to be a trench coat. It's always going to be a trench coat. And you can always find good quality basics at a fraction of the cost just by looking at your local Vinnies or Salvos or whatever. And it's not a hard task to find. And finally, the zero waste option, which is when you want to buy things, buy it in alignment with your values. So put a pause before you buy something new and say, hey, who made this garment? Did, were they fair wages? Was it fair conditions? Or was this garment made from blood, sweat and tears of another female out in the world that is trying to you know, make do so that she can feed her child? Is that fair? Is these wages fair for this person? Because everything that we consume is made by another person. And we have to understand that we, the way that we spend our money is the way we vote with our dollar. So the mm. way we spend with our money is the way that we want to vote for the world that we want to see. So if you think that you really need that brand new jacket or a T-shirt or whatever, save for it. Save for it and buy from a brand that really aligns with your values.
1: Mm. I think that's the thing is when you ask yourself all those questions, you very rarely are going to buy that thing.
0: Exactly. Exactly. <laughs>
1: you know, it becomes a moral kind of code and compass thing. Can I just say, is there like a leaf blower in yes, the background?
0: Yes. Yes. I'm so sorry.
1: <laughs> Don't apologize at all. I found that like, this is just the color of the podcast now where you're like, you know what? <laughs> <laughs> Try and find a one hour window where one person doesn't have a leaf blower. I know.
0: It's just ridiculous, isn't it? It's just like I have construction going at the front, a leaf blower. I'm so sorry.
1: (laughs) Don't you apologize at all. It was me this morning and I thought, oh, well, this is going to be a pretty noisy recording because there's nothing I can do about it. Um, But we are coming towards the end anyway. So if the listeners can just forgive us. But I think it's that. We're all working from home. We all we all um, are experiencing the Zoom call with all of a sudden like a hammer in the background or a drill. Or...
0: Oh, it's ridiculous, isn't it? You just think, oh well, I've got I'm in my room. The child's out. Everything's okay, and then the leaf blower comes.
1: <laughs> <laughs> um, so I have a couple more questions before I let you go. You're a rocket scientist and you're now a doctor. Hmm. I wondered if you have any like what is your relationship with spirituality? And I know you're a meditator um, and you're a very mindful person, but how do you kind of balance the science and the spiritual?
0: I think that we are coming into a new kind of frontier in medicine where it's no longer just about the physical ailments that people are experiencing. It's about the mental, physical, and the spiritual world, and that they're all interconnected. Um, I think that particularly as an engineer and as a doctor, people often misconstrue us as very you know, rigid thinkers who think inside the box. But more and more doctors are realising that nothing is segregated into the specialisations that we talk about. So when we have an endocrinologist who only looks after the hormones or we have a gastroenterologist who only looks after the gut, it doesn't actually make sense because the whole body is not a mechanical functioning of wheels and cogs that you can adjust this, put a pill here or do a surgery there and it can be fixed. It's all interrelated, it's all interconnected. And our human bodies are a huge ecosystem that humans only know a portion about. I think the more I learn about medicine, the more I learn about engineering, the more I realize that we have so much more to learn. And the gap between not knowing and the gap between not the knowledge we have is where spirituality fits in. Mm. That we have to have the grace and be humbled enough to say, hey, as mere humans, we can only know so much. And in the not knowing, there comes there is the space for spirituality.
1: Yeah, like who is responsible for us, you know? Yeah. That's a big thing, isn't it? It's like a question. We didn't question. just arrive here um
0: and also like morals and ethics and you know there's a whole system of how our brain works that we don't know and and vibrations and energies and all these things that we don't know how it truly works but we have to know that we have to take comfort in the not knowing
1: Mm -hmm. oh i've been um gosh that's so such a coincidence you've said that i've been exploring this concept of let go of the need to know Mm. and uh it's very powerful you know when you really stop and you think about like how much of your day is just spent with these repetitive thoughts yeah. about trying to figure stuff out and trying to plan and trying to have all the answers. And then just like when that comes into my consciousness of like, just let go of the need to know, it's like, oh, <laughs> sweet. I have so much more time now. Um, yeah. <laughs> but that, yeah, I'm glad you raised that.
0: Yeah. As a doctor, we have this constant kind of, we have to have the diagnosis. We have to have mm. a solution. We have to have a plan and that's great that's great. We should aim for that. But at the same time, as a doctor, we have to take comfort in that. There's only so much we know and we're doing everything to the best of our knowledge and and mm. just go on from there.
1: So you listen to the podcast. Um, this question is not going to surprise you. <laughs> <laughs> I ask each of my guests a final question and I'm excited to hear your answer because it sounds to me and from what I've sort of read and now talking to you that you've been on such a beautiful, dense and layered journey, self-journey over the past, you know, at least five, eight years. Um, When you're sitting in your true self, who are you and what comes up for you when I say that?
0: I love this question and I love the answers that you get in every podcast.
1: thank you. (laughs) Me too. I learned so
0: much. My true self, my true self, is the person that my daughter sees in me and mm. I say this once again with tears in my eyes because I know you'll make me emotional <laughs> <laughs> because your your children look at you in a way like you are the whole world and In their eyes, you are their whole world. You are their life giver. You are their food giver. You are their toy giver. (laughs) You are their whole world. And I want to be my true self the way that my daughter sees me so that I can be a role model not only towards her but also for myself. So when I talk about self-care, home care, child care, I need to embrace these three layers into my life in a sustainable way that's sustainable for myself and also for the planet. And that's that's where your true self aligns with your true core values and Mm. living in those values and having the freedom to live those values is something that I strive towards even now every single day because society will tell you otherwise you know i live i work in a hierarchical environment being an engineer now a doctor they will push back on you to not express your true self and my job every day is to push against those barriers to say no i have a voice i am valid these are my values and i will not i will not push back against my own values because I really want my true self to shine.
1: Mm. That's so incredible. Thank you. That's very moving. Um, Like you said, it's the favourite part of the episode for me as well because I love, I love hearing people's interpretation of that question and you did not disappoint. So,
0: Oh, no, thank you. It's it's such a beautiful question.
1: (laughs) Thank you. Um, I want to thank you for taking the time, like when I hear about your life and what you've got on an hour is not lost on me (laughs) in terms of, yeah, sitting down to chat to me. And I will link your book, A Zero Waste Family. It's out now. I'll link it in the show notes. I highly, highly suggest if anyone's interested in exploring this for themselves to read it. It's a very nourishing read, a very beautiful book, very easy to read. Um, So yeah, I thank you for writing it.
0: Oh, and I thank you for having me on this beautiful podcast. And also I want to acknowledge you for sharing the work and sharing your vulnerabilities. And I can't wait for you to go on this magical journey of motherhood and, um, yeah, and share it with your followers. So thank you. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you for joining us for this episode of Offline. Visit getoffline.co to explore more episodes, the online courses I've created to help you succeed consciously, and upcoming community events. Follow getoffline.co on Instagram and me. My handle is Alison Larson Rice. Lastly, if you know someone who would benefit from hearing these honest conversations, please share offline with them.